We good? Yeah. I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. We are at the Ecotarium with Lucy Hale. Hello. Welcome, Lucy. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. This is so fun. This is thrilling. <laughs> Lucy is the president and CEO here, but she has a long history working in the museum. Um, do I say industry? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> museums and zoos. Museum yeah. and yeah. zoo world. She worked at the Perot Museum, at the Dallas Zoo and Children's Aquarium, um, Fort Worth Museum. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you have lots of wisdom to share. Mm-hmm. And I bet some strong comparisons, too, between your different experiences. Yeah. Uh, totally. And I got my start in Boston at the Museum of Science, which is in my heart, you know, this this place that was just the most wonderful place to work. So and I think it probably still is. But yeah, it's just um, a lot of different varied experiences over the years and um, really awesome place to land to be here in Worcester at the Ecotarium. So I thought of you because we met over the summer at an event for the library and I, that same time period, came across this article in the Washington Post that talked about how few women run museums. And I was like, yes. well, I just met one, you know? <laughs> well, guess what, Washington Post? Get out of here, Marty Baron. But particularly the salary gap that exists between men and women in yes. the museum world. Yeah. And I was curious about how you go about negotiating your salary when you move from position to position and yeah. if you've experienced this at all firsthand. Oh, gosh, absolutely. So... Um, you know, when when I read that article too, I, I looked, uh, I did a little bit of digging into the numbers because, you know, I, I've worked in science museums and I've worked in zoos and a lot of museums are art museums and history museums. And um, looking at science museums specifically, fifty-seven percent of the women, of the leaders are women, which is good to know. Like there's some equity there. But then I looked at zoos and it's less than thirty percent of the CEOs are women. And I think um, I think that industry has a has a lot of work to do, <laughs> more so than the museum industry. But in terms of the the equity and salary, I think that we've had a lot of conversations about that as an industry um, at our at our conferences and within the directors groups and the board groups that meet. And it's definitely something that I think a lot of people have been blind to. And it's it's shocking um, when you when you realize that folks who are in charge of hiring aren't always even realizing that they're doing this. And at one of my jobs, I was at a a level, um, a senior level, and and the women who were in those senior roles were making actually half of what the men were making. Um, And that was an institution that that had a lot of female leaders in it and and female leaders on the board. And that was shocking when when we kind of had that realization. And and, um, I remember I was hiring somebody in in that organization, and the top candidate was a man, and I was going to make the offer. And um, my boss said, well, I, I don't think he'll take it because of the salary. We're going to have to raise it. And I was like, well, this is the budget, and this is what we would offer anybody. And we had this moment of like, oh, oh, my God. <laughs> we need to talk about this right now because this is not okay. Um, so it's definitely, I think it it requires constant attention to be paid to it to make sure that all salaries are equitable no matter the person's gender, um, race, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. And and you have to think about the budget of the institution as well. You know, um, the salaries that we have here at the Ecotarium might be different than you'd have at the Boston Museum of Science because it's a much larger institution. It's a higher cost of living. So you have to take that stuff into account too. But you have to be fair and you have to pay people what they're worth as much as you can. That made my jaw literally drop. 
Like, I just couldn't. Sometimes I remember that this is a podcast. Like, I'll do things Sarah knows. Like, I'll make, like, gestures. But, like, I literally, I think, like, Sarah, too, we both were just like, oh, my God. Like, I was, like, blinking. Like, what? I want to talk, if we can, a little bit. Because you asked about here. And Mm -hmm. I'm so lucky I have the most wonderful board chair in the world. And we had a very open and fair negotiation practice. Is it Paul Belsita? It is. (laughs) He is a wonderful part of our community, and he seems to advocate for so many organizations that are dear to me. Yeah, and so you know, and so much of our many of our board too, they had done a big salary survey before they um, hired for my position to make sure that what they were offering was equitable. And so um, when we got to that conversation, you know, I had pulled a lot of data about the market in Worcester. I had looked at some nine nineties. I had looked at the salary. Um, the I think it's the Massachusetts Center for Nonprofits does a big salary survey. I looked at the survey for the that the Association of Science and Technology Centers does. They put that out every five years. Um, the kind of benchmark where I thought I should be based on my what I knew my experience to be. Um, and and it was a back and forth conversation and it and we also had to take into account the realities of the institution and what we could afford and what was fair based on everybody else's salaries too. You don't want to have somebody who's making so much more than everybody else. That's not fair either. Um, and so that was I, I was very fortunate that that there that I had a, a partner in that in the board that was willing to have that conversation. And then I'd learned over the years, you know, how to advocate for myself. And um and I think that's a big thing that women, anybody in this field needs to know how to do or any any industry. But um look at the information that's available and don't go blind into into a negotiation. Make sure you you know your worth, but you also know what the market can bear. Um so that you and sometimes you have to walk away and say, I can't do this. Um, you know, I have a family to think about. I have, you know, my, my, whatever it might be, or you might have student loans, you might have, you know, obligations that are, that are financially restricting and you've got to take that into account too. So, um, but it, it's really being able to, to, to stand up for yourself. Um, and the first time I had to do it, I was, I think I was like 26 and, um, and it was the, and I had never felt like I needed to ask for a raise before. And I did. And, at that moment in my career, and it was really scary. And the person that I talked to said, you're absolutely right, we should be paying you more. And they did. (laughs) So just, you know, having the confidence to do it, you just kind of psych yourself up. (laughs) And I think too, like, if you ask, and they say no, that's also an opportunity for you to then say, okay, so maybe this isn't the right fit for me, and I need to find something else. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think any institution too, you know, we've, we've tried to be as financially transparent in my tenure here with the staff as we can, and and also with the board to under so that everybody understands what our numbers look like. Where are we trending? Are we ahead of budget? Are we behind budget? Um, what are the buckets of our expenses? How much does each department cost to run? Like, let's take salary out of that and look at just the the non salary costs to run this institution, um, so that people kind of understand what the what the realities are that we deal with every day when we operate a building that's almost fifty years old on forty seven acres <laughs> with an t- almost two hundred year old collection. <laughs> I remember I came in to sit down with you exactly one year after you had started yeah. this position. Yeah. And I asked, what are some of the biggest changes that you made? And you said, well, we had to restructure some of the employees because we got these cats and we needed to do dangerous animal training. (laughs) But I'm curious about the status of the cats, what are their names and their personalities, but then also, like, what goes into dangerous animal training? So um, 
It's like that scene in Jurassic Park with the Velociraptor <laughs> and Chris Pratt. Like, <laughs> no, it's not like that. We have barriers. Um, so we, the cats are wonderful. They just turned a year old in December, and their names are Salton and Freya. Salton is our male, um, and Freya is the female. And um, the the we can the male name was uh, was picked by. Um, we auctioned the, the naming rights off at a night at the museum last year, which was super fun. And so uh, there were two families that, that won that item, and they, they let their children come together to pick the name, which I thought was really sweet. And then Freya, the female, um, we asked our members to submit names, and then we put that out to the public to vote on. And so um, so that was great. And then the, the cats are around, I think the female's a, a little over 70 pounds now maybe, and the male is um, a little over 80 and he's getting neutered next week, um, so that's that's a big deal. Um, we our vets are Tufts Wildlife Clinic; there are veterinarians of record, and so um, that procedure will happen next week on Friday. And they're they're just fabulous, you know. They're kittens for another year. They're they're in their kitten state for two years, so they're still growing, just like a house cat would still be growing. And their little personalities have come out. So the male is super laid back and relaxed. Um, there's some mornings he doesn't want to get up. He's just happy to, to sleep. And the female is active, and she loves to play, and she'll go bug her brother if he doesn't get up in the morning. And um, it's just it's really fun to see. Because when they came in, she was more shy, and he was more outgoing, and to sort of see how that's changed. And she kind of really runs the day. She she sets the schedule. <laughs> but dangerous animal training. So we have um, staff that are very experienced with with cats and carnivores. And so dangerous animal training is really, um, it's the experience working with those types of predators, those predatory animals. Um, and it's also the the policies and the procedures you have in place. And so there's locking systems that are in place. There's um, a system of always having two, at least two people, um, always having a barrier between you and that animal. So we never go and we call that protected contact. There's always um, um, something between you and that cat so that you're always safe and the cat is always safe. And then we also have, um, you know, uh, I think it's more of a philosophy, but you never want to get into a routine because that's when you make mistakes, when you're just, it's a routine, you open this, you lock that, you close this, you leave, and then you forget um, to do stuff and you trick your, your mind tricks you that you've done it. And so it's just really being very present and aware all the time um, and aware of your surroundings and not letting your mind wander and being very um uh, you know, not being tired or or anything like that, and just being very conscious the whole time that you're you're doing the work. Um, yeah. So you spoke a little bit about naming the animals and how you auctioned off the rights. And I had a, a game for you uh-huh. that's based off of <laughs> animals coming to this uh, institution, yeah. which now I'm going to use that word all the time. Institution. institution. Um, so I'm going to just name a couple animals and I want you to tell me what you would name them. Oh, I'm the worst at naming were, animals. But that's why you just have to like, okay. use, it's a, and it's a fun association game. <laughs> so like, what would happen if you got a penguin? What would its name be? Mr. Penguin. Exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> See, this what is why a, I'm not allowed to name penguins. What about a lion? Oh, I don't know. Bob? Bob is a great name for a lion. An Arctic fox. Foxy. Oh, that's See, good. these are all good names. Mm-hmm. I like Bob the best. <laughs> this is why I know I'm when I'm not allowed to name the animals. I think that those are great yeah. names. Well, I said to, I was telling Sarah, I was like, you know, for example, like Susie. Can <laughs> you remember what animal? Was and like, if the penguin was a girl, it would be Ms. Penguin. Ms. Penguin. Miss Pac-Man. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> 
and you had mentioned the the crowdsourcing, but I know you've just done that for one of your recent exhibits on global warming and climate yes. change. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you got the community involved? Sure. So we um, we launched this exhibit, Community Curators, and it was really because of our historic collections, and they they don't get out that much, and people don't see them. We were thinking, how could we? Um, how could we put more of our collections on the floor and how could we involve the community in that process? And climate change is such a pressing issue in our in our world right now. And so um, we thought, what if we invited people to come in and curate um, our collection through the lens of what they're worried about with climate change? And so um, we invited, uh, well, one of the people wasn't really a person. It was Paws from the Pawtucket Red Sox, but he's a polar bear, and he's obviously very worried about the Arctic. Um, and then Shay Anderson from the city. Um, and then uh, Sochi uh, Gallo-Cruz and her mom, Selena, um, came in. Uh, Sochi's one of the youth climate activists in Worcester, and so and her mom's very active in, that com- in, the, in the mom's group that is against climate or, or advocating for um, policy and, and education around climate change. And so um, each individual picked items that really related to their concerns. Everybody has a place they love that is um, part of this world that you're worried about. Um, and so or, or an animal or, or, um, or a plant. And so we really wanted to tell that story. And then we also had some pieces that were uh, crowdsourced through social media from the public and the public picked the sloth and the penguin. Um, And then we have a couple of exhibits in there that talk about the impacts of climate change on industry here in Massachusetts. And two industries in particular are being heavily impacted. One is the maple sugar industry and one is the fishing fishing industry. Um, As uh, oceans warm and as um, oceans become acidified, our, our, animals that were dependent on for the economy, be they fish or, or oysters or clams are being impacted. And so, um, and I, there was a statistic about Cape Cod, which, and, and Wellfleet in particular, which is where we go as a family every year. And it just like gutted me. And it was something like that water is warming faster than something like 99% of the other waters in the world. And that was really hard to read. Not my Logi Bay oysters. I love Well Fleet. Oh God! <laughs> um, but it must have been a totally different experience in Texas to teach people about climate change as well. What was it like, and how is it different from here? Um, you know, I, I, there's so it's there are climate deniers everywhere. You know, regardless of um, political party or religious affiliation or where you are in the country. I think because of where we were in Texas, we were in the Dallas area. Um, and yes, Texas has a coast, although that would be like saying that Kansas has a coast. <laughs> you know, it's just Dallas is, you know, from the perspective of Dallas, mm-hmm. it's it's very far away from the ocean. And so um, I think it's harder to see the direct impacts of climate change, maybe not so much now, but 10 years ago. Now the the, the frequency of these severe storms that are coming through North Texas, I think a lot more people are, are waking up to, to this um, issue. And then the the industries that... Um, are so dependent on the earth, the the ranching industry in Texas, um, agriculture in Texas, those folks get it because they're seeing it every day in the work that they do and the impacts um, on their on their plants and their and their crops. But it was definitely tricky. There is um, an amazing scientist, though, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe at Texas Tech, and she's one of the foremost climate scientists and and lecturers. And she's also an an extremely it comes from a very deep faith. And so she's able to talk about this as 
sort of a, um, a Christian responsibility to take care of the world. And she was able to reach people that were maybe on the other side of the aisle um, religiously that were um, coming from a different political background, too, because of that. And I think um, working for a conservation organization in Texas, I worked for the National Audubon Society for two years. There were a lot of people that would come to the table around things that we all cared about, regardless of their political affiliation. Um, and things like clean water were one of those. Um, the Clean Water Act now is being gutted as we sit here, and, and that's terrifying. And, and there are people I know in Texas who are staunch Republicans who are horrified by it. And so I think there, there are some things that we all agree on, and I think if we can focus on that, it's a lot easier to talk about it. The hardest thing to teach about in Texas, honestly, um, more than climate change, was evolution. That was when we got a lot of pushback on, and we just kept pushing because it's science, but that was always hard. Yeah, you mentioned that you would, like, inject it into different exhibits, or, like, you try to sneak it in and be like, yeah. this is also part of this whole thing. <laughs> um, and I'm assuming that, that that evolution in particular is much less of a problem in New England. Um, it still comes up. Yeah. It still comes up, but it's, yeah. um, I think, you know, one of the things I realized when I moved to Texas was that I had such a bias against people that weren't from New England. And right. I was like, oh, God, I feel like a horrible person now. Um, and so uh, I think there's probably, um, and in, there's probably, it comes up less here. Um, I don't know that it means that there's less people that don't believe in it, but it, it definitely is not as hard for us to teach it here. Well, I was going to say, I wonder also if it just has to do with like the curriculum, like, yeah, like yeah. The, our science books are different yes. and that's just yeah. true. Like our right. si- the science books that we use in our schools here are different from the ones that they use in Texas. Yeah. And there's, um, yeah, and the way that that's controlled is very different in right. the state than it is down there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of climate change and evolution and changes to nature and animals, we spoke a little bit about some of the, taxidermied birds yeah. that I that I loved from the collection. <laughs> um, can you tell us uh, some of their stories? Sure. Where they come from, what happened to them? Yeah, so we have um, two very historic um, bird collections. We have the Forbush collection and the Thayer collection. Um, our collections date back to 1825, and so these are just, you know, we've, we've had these things forever. And so we do have some birds that are extinct, like the passenger pigeon. Um, you know, passenger pigeons numbered in the millions and they would block the sun for days, allegedly, with their flocks, and um, and people could never imagine them not being around, and they were hunted to extinction. Um, and they were they were considered pests because they would just tear through agricultural fields when they were when they were flying through. Um, and then the Carolina parakeet is another one. The it's the only native parrot to the to the North American region, and they range from the Carolinas down to Florida and across the Gulf. And so. Um, that bird was went extinct, I think, in the in the early 1800s um, or mid 1800s. And so, to have those two birds in our in our collection, it tells the story of um, of why these natural history collections are so important to preserve this history. And then also for for researchers as they're discovering new species to be able to come and see, you know, what they might be related to. We have a um, a sawfish that uh, it's a type of fish and has a long snout and researchers took DNA samples to compare them to modern sawfish to see if the species are diverging or um, and how climate change is impacting the, the species that are or the fish that are around today. They're the same species, but there's they were curious if climate change had impacted them and divided them into different species. And then we have um, uh, birds, you know, we have all of these songbirds in our collection, and many of our songbirds overwinter in South America in the land that has been burned in Brazil. And so we don't know yet. That was so recent. Um, 
we don't know yet what the impacts of that will be. And will we be seeing less birds come back on migration um, or from, you know, go, coming back from South America? And and that's that's to be seen. So we really enjoyed going back to the collections. Yes. That was so wild. <laughs> it was like a secret door that you had to unlock. And our friend, the museum curator, Marty, Marty. Marty he took us on a, a tour and all of the shelves kind of like slide in and out and the new exotic things are revealed with each new shelf. Yeah, I was, yeah. I'm not kidding. Like I was like thrilled. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. We have like <laughs> over um, 30,000 objects, uh, maybe actually over 50,000 objects. And then I think around 13,000 of those are catalogs. So you can go on our website and look up what we have in the collection. It's That's amazing. extraordinarily cool. Yeah. I know your background is in art history, but <laughs> this reminds me of uh, some of the issues they're facing in the art world right now where a private collection is wonderful, but only one person gets to enjoy the art. Yeah. But then if you send something off to a museum, often the piece will sit in a you know climate-controlled basement somewhere for years and years and years, and people don't get to see it either. Yeah. So how are you ensuring that some of the resources that you have in storage will get out and about so that people can enjoy them? It's a really good question. You know, we, we're in the strategic planning process right now. Our current plan takes us through 2020, and so we're looking at 2021 to 2026, and that encompasses our 200-year anniversary um, in 2025. And one of the questions is, how do we better connect people to these collections, and how do we ensure their relevancy? And so um, some of the ideas that have come up are like open storage, so, you know, a storage that's also an exhibit, um, things like tours of the collections or ways that we can bring some of the objects out through. We, we do traveling exhibits, and so maybe there's an opportunity to travel and exhibit with our collections around the country to other science museums. Um, and then some science museums have divested their collections so that they go to a research institution. Um, and many of the, you know, many science museums were founded as natural history societies. And so for us, the opportunity there is that we kept them. And because we kept them, we feel like we owe it to not just the collection, but the founders of this institution to, to share them. You mentioned your Night of the Museum fundraiser, too, that's coming up. And I know you have a lot of neat auction items and things where people can, like, get into the planetarium or maybe <laughs> go on a private it. tour of the collection. Maybe go to Namibia. Oh, what? <laughs> okay, so give us the scoop. What's going on at the Night of the Museum and what are some of the big ticket items? Okay, so um, Night at the Museum is May 9th. And, I mean... Worcester has amazing galas like you know we we love a we love a gala um but ours uh we have it here at the museum and so that's one of the things that makes it unique I think is that we immerse people in our mission um so this year we're going to hold it down at the new uh uh, Pappas Educational Plaza at Wildcat Station so people will be on that beautiful new plaza under a tent because I got to knock on wood like it's May (laughs) it might rain but it's not going to and then Strzok does the catering, and it's just this delicious meal and, um, and a really fabulous auction. And so last year we auctioned off a mountain lion name. We don't have another mountain lion. Um, but we do have some fun stuff. We, have, we, we bring on a lot of hands-on science components. We, we do sh- our education team does some science shows. Our live animals come out. And then in terms of items, we have a couple of big trips. Um, one is to a place in the Caribbean, and then... There will, there will be a very big announcement um, around a partnership that we're doing to, to bring people to, uh, out of this country to um, the beautiful country of, of Namibia. We're really excited about that. That's a teaser. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's uh, for us, too, it's 
what we we focus so much on New England, but everything is connected, and all all of our environment is connected. This you know the storms that hap that start in Africa come across that ocean to us, and and so many of our animals trans you know go around the globe on their migrations, and especially when you think about our ocean animals. And so we we felt like it was really important to to try to find a partner, a really great partner, which we did, um, to to bring people to to some of these wonderful places. And then we also have some great concert tickets and we've got some great sports packages and um, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And then we have some things that are really special to us, like our planetarium, which is being renovated. And so the, the person who wins that will get to have an experience in a brand new planetarium facility. Um, and then also our, uh, in, ter- in terms of the community curators collection, we're, we're going to keep, some of those cases. And um, so one of the auction items will be the opportunity to curate your own case, um, going into our collections area and pulling things out that mean something to you. That sounds very cool. (laughs) I am going to win it. Um, You can pull out that squirrel. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that squirrel. So this bad taxidermy, is it an internet meme widely known? Well, there's like a whole, there's like... um, like Instagram, like social media pages that are just like bad taxidermy. But yeah, there's a few that have come up that are that are have become like famous. There's a couple foxes. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are it's like yeah. a bobcat. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> we unearthed the squirrel. We it's- did that. Yeah. So there's yes, the squirrel in the collections is he's just like got a lot happening. We'll post a photo. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> yes, there will be a photo. But there's like a, and then the best Someone part, tried. They yeah. tried really hard. Yeah, but then the best part is that there's like a beautifully taxidermy possum right behind it. Yeah. Wait, is it a possum or an opossum? It was, it's an opossum. That one is an opossum. Yeah. yeah. And then the the ones in Australia? Possums. possums. Yes. Okay. I yeah. love opossums. I do too. They're so ugly. And, and they I, eat a lot of ticks. I love them. You mentioned that everything is connected and like you know place to place outside of new england do you have a favorite museum or zoo elsewhere that you visited oh well i mean the dallas zoo is always my favorite zoo because i worked there for so long and i love that zoo so much and the people there um so i I have to say the dallas zoo just because in my heart it is my favorite zoo but um in terms of zoos i visited that i did not work at that i love the henry dorley zoo um in uh in Omaha is phenomenal. They have one of the most gorgeous desert exhibits I've ever seen and night houses. Like it's not really a night house. It's like a night experience. And you go through different habitats where you see animals living their nocturnal lives. And it's just amazing. If you love alligators, you've got to go check it out. (laughs) We were talking about alligators. Um, And then the uh, Sonoran Desert Museum in Arizona is one of my favorites as well. Um, and I love going, you know, I grew up going to the stone zoo. That was my zoo as a kid. And we went all the time. And, um, and even, you know, even a small New England zoo like that, like I loved that zoo. And so, um, have very happy memories there. It was funny though. I went, um, working at zoos, you know, you go to the zoo conference and I went, we went to, um, the Atlanta zoo and I was like, oh my God, I love their herp house. It's this amazing herp house and the reptile house, you know. And so my friends and I go and I'm texting my friend who's the curator at the Dallas Zoo. And he's like, and I'm telling him all about my memories. And he's like, I don't think you're thinking of the right place. And I walked in and it was lovely, but it was not what I was thinking. And I was like, I think I made a memory of all the zoos I visited before I was 10. And it's one zoo that only exists in my memory. ultimate though you can yeah. model your future herp house after yes. this like vision well it's funny because that leads me to my next question which is like what would be your dream 
exhibit. It could be animals or just like any other. What would like if you could do anything you wanted with like money was no object and you could bring in whatever you wanted to do, what would be your like ultimate exhibit? That's a great question. I so I can I answer it in two ways. So for here at Ecotarium, I think uh, it would be like this amazing outdoor um like physical science climbing structure like garden experience for kids that's just like over like if you look at the tel- what they've done in Tulsa like that like just amazing things for kids to explore um nature but also the concept of physics um through through different opportunities outside um in terms of like what I would if I could build any like I love penguins so much yeah. I would build like the most amazing <laughs> penguin house ever with all the penguin species in it <laughs> but that not here because that wouldn't make sense for us <laughs> you know a girl can dream right? and they'd all be named Mr. Penguin I'm thinking of when you mentioned that, like, a ex- exploration of, like, nature and physics. I was thinking how it almost sounded like a combination. They have that, like, awesome playground physics at the Museum of Science in Boston. Yes. But also, in my head, I was thinking of, you were talking about great memories of being a kid. In Disney World, they used to have the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids park. Yeah. And you could, cl- oh like, you would slide down the leaves, and it was mm-hmm. just like, it was, you know, everything was the scale of the movie, and it was like the greatest I remember that. place ever, right? Yeah. I, there's a picture oh, of me. So cool. Yeah, I, there's a picture of me, like, sitting in, like, the Kodak canister, the little Kodak film canister, and I think that I look like the happiest I've ever been in my life. <laughs> but I'm thinking of, like, that plus science. Yeah. Yeah, Let's do it. If you could like mix in some really high hitting, hard hitting curriculum. Absolutely. Now I've heard you say twice today that would be really neat or this is a beautiful piece, but it's not right for this museum. Mm -hmm. We saw the taxidermy tiger that was in the back in your collections. And you said, you know, this tiger died very young. It's a gorgeous piece, but it's not right for the ecotarium. What makes something right for the Ecotarium? Like, why aren't penguins right for the Ecotarium? Yeah, because you're like, I want a penguin exhibit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Bring it on. So we we have to look at everything through the lens of our of our mission, and you know, our mission is to inspire a passion for nature and science. And it, you know, if, if we're not just a, a zoo, a traditional zoo, we're not just a traditional science museum. We're a, a mix of different different things. And everything we do in terms of our animal collection and also in terms of our exhibits is is through the lens of New England and New England ecology. And so for us, it would be like a real shift to say, and now we're going to have, you know, a tiger. Um, and we do, you know, we have um, we have a lot of animals that are are not of New England that we have in our collection uh, that are research specimens. And so they have, you know, um, a real purpose for for scientific research over the years and and for people to come in like the sawfish rostrum um, or the tanagers. But for for something like that tiger, which is a beautiful display specimen, it should go somewhere where it can educate kids about tiger conservation. That would be wonderful. And so, you know, as we think about that collection and and our strategic plan, we'll we'll think about the objects that really need to find a place where they can they can be used to, you know, that it, that tiger was. Um, a live animal once, and we we should do right by by that and honor that and make sure it can teach kids. And speaking of teaching kids, I noticed that you have worked with some socially conscious organizations too, like Love Your Labels for events oh, yeah. here. 
And I want to know what created that connection. And then also, has Worcester been receptive to to having in groups like Love Your Labels at the Ecotarium? Yeah. So when I first came to Worcester, I wanted to meet uh, the folks in the maker community because we've always, everywhere I've worked, has had a deep connection with the maker community. And one of my board members said, oh, you should meet Josh. Croak. And so we met and had a wonderful coffee and conversation and just really got to know each other. And, and when they launched uh, Love Your Labels, it just was it was such a, I just felt, I, I don't know, like, it, that's just such a wonderful, wonderful organization. And the program they do with youth, I think it's so necessary and needed for kids to feel like there's a safe place for them to be them. And also, I am fascinated by fashion. Like, I can't sew anything um, to save my life. I couldn't even make my Barbies clothes when I was a kid. And so I think that's also for kids who are interested in clothes to have um, an outlet to learn that and to learn it from experienced designers and, and people in the fashion industry is really great. And so when when he was telling me or Josh was telling me about the the Threads fashion show they said oh we're looking we're trying to figure out where to have it and we can't quite find the right venue cuz it's fam it's for families and i said well we're like the family place in Worcester do you want to have it here and they were like really and so it just it just made sense and they we we had a little bit of um we had some staff who had a little bit of discomfort and we just we talked about why this was important and it's important to be welcoming to everybody and it's something I'm very passionate about. I have, you know, beloved family members who I who are um, in the LGBTQ community and I wanted to make sure that they always felt welcome coming here to visit me. And we also have a lot of staff members that that are in that community and and they all want this to be a place that they feel welcome, obviously, and feel like their families can come to. And so it was really important that we embraced the community here in Worcester, the LGBTQ community here in Worcester, and and doing the Threads Fashion Show just seemed like a natural connection because of the family connection. And that 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 memory of of that show in our planetarium is probably one of my favorite work memories of all time. It was so emotional, and so many of our staff came to see it. We were all standing in the back because we didn't want to take seats because it was so packed, and we we're all like sobbing. You know, <laughs> it was just so beautiful, and um, to have these kids just show their stuff off in front of their families and share what they made. It was great. We had Josh on this show, I think it was last February and the program hadn't quite started and it was just kicking off and they were working with Sam Donovan who was on project runway. But the idea is that teenagers in particular, right from across central mass will have an opportunity to work in fashion design and create their own designs. And, you know, we got no push, no pushback um, from anybody in the in the public. I mean, maybe people were upset, but they didn't share it with us. And so um, they get and and we had many people who were not part of the Love Your Labels organization or family members of the kids that just bought tickets to come and see the experience. So it was great. Yeah. Awesome. I think Worcester tends to be very open to that kind of thing and very welcoming. Yeah. As far as we can tell. Yes. And it's awesome that you have a chance to have difficult conversations with your staff about, Mm. you know, why certain things are important. And I think discomfort is a good thing for a lot of people. That's not our immediate inclination, but it's good to say, okay, well, why do you feel that way? And, you know. Let's let's unpack it. Yeah. Like, how do we move on from there? Because it was going to happen no matter what, I'm assuming. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And and also, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize the biases they have. And and when you have those conversations, um, 
you know, you, you assume everybody's coming from a good place and, and has kindness in their heart. And um, if they don't, that's a different conversation. But it makes everybody stronger and it makes a better organization at the end of the day. Yeah, I think approaching difficult conversations like in good faith is all you can ask for, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that giving people difficult. the benefit of the doubt. And that's yes. my goal. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Always. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I think, like, you can tell. When you can tell, you can tell when, when you really shouldn't trust in that person or when they are coming with bad faith. Yes. It's, you know? Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for yes. having those conversations in our community, and then also in Texas. I like, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm so intrigued by that part of your story. Is there anything that you haven't had a chance to share yet with Worcester um, that you would like everyone to know about either the Ecotarium or your experience here? Oh well, thanks for asking. Um, we, I don't know, my husband and I really are enjoying living here. You know, and we re- we relocated. Last year, we bought a house in Worcester, um, have loved, you know, getting to explore the city and the region in Central Mass. I grew up in Eastern Mass. And so, you know, we didn't come to the center of the state that much, which I feel horrible about because there's such cool stuff here. Mm-hmm. But getting to go to the museums and uh, go to um, Wachusett Meadow to hike all the time, you know, love Mass Audubon and all the incredible restaurants and stuff. That's just been really fun to, like, get to be from here, but not from here, you know, and mm-hmm. And I think with Worcester, too, it's just been nice to get to know how connected everybody is and how much everybody wants the city to succeed and everybody in the city to succeed. And there's a lot of um, power and collaboration. And so uh, getting to see where the pockets of opportunity are to collaborate with business or with other nonprofits or with the city, it's just been really wonderful to, to see what's available and kind of you know, everything is possible with time and money, right? And lawyers, they say. Um, and so to to have the um, the time to have those conversations to find the money, like that's just been really great to know that the community's there to support that. We have exciting things on the horizon. You know, we have um, three more traveling exhibits coming in this year, and we're really excited to share them with the community. We had a blockbuster attendance year last year. We beat every goal we've ever had. And so um, we're hoping to just continue to do that every year. So it's it's a big job, but we love it. I have one more question. Okay. Do people still ever ask you about Kenda? Oh, God, all the time. Like, all the time? Yeah, all the time. People are like, do you still have that polar bear? No. And I'm like, no, no. And they're like, oh, did you get rid of it to get the mountain lions? And I'm like, no. She's no, she's been gone for old. a long time. Um, and, I, you know, I just think that's, like, that's the memory of this place, yeah. though. And people loved her so much. And, um, and you know, I knew her her. Uh, father because wow. Major went to the Stone Zoo oh and yeah and so that was the polar bear I grew up with um, and I'm like he died a really long time ago because I'm old um, <laughs> and so the you know I think that's just that's just a testament to the to how much people love the Ecotarium but um, we get asked it all the time and the joke we had was when we opened um, Wildcat Station which the cats live we refurbished a $3.1 million refurbishment of that habitat and built a whole new back of house. But that was where the polar bear was. And we yeah. were joking that people are going to be like, are they next to the polar bear? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. There's no polar bear. There's okay, no polar bear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she was beloved. Beloved yeah. by staff and public alike. For so, sure. Yeah. I have many childhood memories. <laughs> yes. Of yeah. Kenda. Yes, yeah. yes. It's like Kenda and the train. Yeah, yeah we train. still do have the train. I love the train. Yeah, we still have the train. The railers uh, are very kind to sponsor oh, yeah. for us, but we love the train. It's it's super fun. So it's not it's to bed for the winter, but it will come back out in the spring. Yeah. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much, Lucy. You are like a vibrant presence in this community. And whenever I see you at an event, I'm like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Aw, thanks. It's really, really nice to have you. It's been so nice to be on. Thank you. It's just, it's, and it's been so lovely to get to know you too and to meet you as well. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Well, I have been Sarah. I have been Molly. And this is Pop It. Pop It. This episode of Pop It was made possible by the Worcester Arts Council. The Worcester Arts Council supports our city's vibrant, creative, and cultural community.